And Resurrection Sunday, or the resurrection of Christ, is why we are here. Without Christ being risen, we have nothing. We would not be Christians. And so because he's risen, that changes everything. It changes the whole world, and so we focus on it. And so what we're going to do over the next this Sunday and the next three Sundays is look at the last days and hours of Jesus and as it leads up to the resurrection. And so at the end of Luke, it's called the Gospel of Luke, the good news that Luke is telling us about Christ. And it tells us the, the story, and we're going to start in verse 39, which is the last day of Jesus. Now, sometimes as it stretches out over the Bible, we don't realize how quickly the pace is. And as we go over the next three weeks, it'll feel stretched out. But this is just a few hours. The passage we start with tonight, Jesus will be crucified in about 12 hours from this time. And it's dark. The passages are dark. So for the next three weeks, this week, next two weeks, they're going to be dark sermons, which leads to Resurrection Sunday, which is a powerful, light-giving service. But you can't appreciate the resurrection until you appreciate the death of Christ and the suffering of Christ. And so as we look at uh, Luke, there's going to be long passages because it's a story. So we're we're going to read Luke chapter 22 and verse 39 down to verse 62. And this is going to be, as we read through, there's two settings. There's going to be a scene in a garden near Jerusalem and then in the high priest's house. It's at at nighttime. This is the day before Jesus dies, so it's going to start in a garden with Jesus and his disciples, and it's going to move to another uh, house where he's put on trial. So read with me. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. Coming out, that's coming out of Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. That's all the disciples except for Judas, who had already left to conspire with the religious leaders. When he came to the place, this was the Garden of Gethsemane, it's where he would sleep many nights. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude... And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter said among them, A certain servant girl, 
seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the beginning of the suffering of Christ for our sins. Christianity is centered on suffering. It's not an escape from suffering. It's built on suffering. And that's not something people want to hear. We want an escape from suffering. And often, we think suffering is pointless. How can it be good? One famous uh, philosopher of the 20th century, Albert Camus, said, Believe me, there's no such thing as great suffering, great regret, great great memory. Everything is forgotten, even a great love. That's what's sad about life, and also what's wonderful about it. There's only one way of looking at things, a way that comes to you every once in a while. That's why it's good to have love in your life, after all, to have an unhappy passion. It gives you an alibi for the vague despairs we all suffer from. He had nothing. This philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, said, there's nothing. There's nothing but suffering to no end. No point. That's not what Christianity offers. Christianity says there will be suffering, but it has a point. This passage is about Jesus. I read a commentary this week that spent all of their time talking about the people except for Jesus. And I thought, Peter, Judas, great, but it's about Jesus. And that's what this philosopher misses. He looks at the suffering, not the person. He didn't know Jesus. So we look at this, we see how did Jesus handle suffering? Why did he handle suffering? And how can we follow him in that? So we see that Jesus suffers in prayer. Jesus is rejected by disciples. And then how we follow Jesus in those things. The theme of the book of Luke, there's a theme that runs through it of darkness. And we see it here. They come to him at night. Jesus says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. The nighttime was symbolic of the darkness that was descending on the earth. The power of Satan. Satan was using suffering to destroy Jesus. And so the world became dark. And even today we understand the difference between light and darkness. The Bible spends a lot of time in these last few passages talking about darkness, suffering, and relatively fewer passages talking about light, because that's life. Life is mostly darkness, mostly suffering. So the Bible shows us a window into something beyond our life. So what did Jesus do when he faced suffering? So the first thing we see here is is prayer from verse 39 to 46. It's focused on prayer. So Jesus goes to the garden to pray. And we see the purpose of prayer. 
We know prayer is a part of Christianity. We know we're supposed to pray. But why? Well, why did Jesus pray? He says in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Prayer is what gives you strength. It inoculates you against sin. Now, we think we fight sin by fighting, by strong determination, by willpower. You ever fallen into sin? You're like, oh, I couldn't hold out. But what does Jesus say? You pray to fight temptation. You do not have the willpower to stand up against temptation. That's what this whole passage is about. So he said, pray. Prayer is so important to fight temptation that Jesus says, you pray, and then he went and prayed. Do you think you are stronger than Jesus? Yet, how often do we face trouble without prayer? How often do we only pray when trouble comes? As if to think, like, no trouble is coming in the future that you should be preparing for? You see, the disciples didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how bad this night was going to turn. But Jesus did, and so he told them, bad things are coming. Pray now before they happen. The message is still for us. You're either going through trouble or you're going to go through trouble. If you're going through trouble, prayer is pretty natural. But if you're not going through trouble, you need to hear Jesus. Pray so you won't enter into temptation. So when the trouble comes, you won't fall into sin. So prayer is how you fight sin. It prepares you to fight it. And what does prayer do? Often we've been taught or we think that prayer is getting things from God. But this passage corrects us. What does Jesus get from God? He goes to God and withdraw, he knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. That's what Jesus prayed. Take this cup away from me. But, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus had, Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. And as a man, he did not like suffering. Did you know that? Jesus does not like to suffer. Sometimes you think, oh, he's God, he likes to suffer. No, he did not want to suffer. He did not want to suffer any more than you want to suffer. And he prayed to God like we pray, take this suffering away. Please, take this suffering away. But that was not the point of the prayer. The point of the prayer was the second half. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus was praying in order to align himself with God so that he wanted what God wanted. So when you pray during suffering, your ultimate purpose in prayer is to get on the same page as God. So that when God brings things into your life, you and God are working together as opposed to God working and you opposing. So prayer is not so much about getting from God or God taking away from you as much as you and God agreeing. Which is why prayer is humbling, because God doesn't change his opinion for you. So the only thing you can do is change your opinion for him. And so Christ, as the perfect example, did exactly that. Showed us what it means to be human and follow God. It's to express and say, God, I don't like suffering. It hurts. I don't want it. But nevertheless, your will, not mine. So Jesus' prayer prepared him for temptation and aligned himself with God. 
Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Now that seems like the answer to prayer, doesn't it? But what was Jesus praying about when he said, take this cup away from me? What was the cup? Whatever that cup was, Jesus didn't want it. So what was in the cup? Well, in Revelation 14, God tells us what is in that cup. It's not from Satan. This is not Jesus fighting Satan. Because that's what we're taught a lot of times. Satan comes to him and he's struggling with Satan. He's not fighting Satan. He's realizing what God has in store for him. In Revelation chapter 14, we see the cup reappear. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall, so what's in that cup? He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in the image, whoever receives the mark of his name. What is in the cup that Jesus doesn't want? That, the wrath of God. Brimstone, fire, smoke, no rest. Their torment ascends forever and ever. That's what God wanted Jesus to take. And Jesus says, whoa. One place it says he was astonished. And so when he says, "Not," he says, take this cup away from me because it's full of judgment and wrath. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. What does that mean? That means Jesus is accepting the cup. And as a result, when the angel appeared to him, in verse 44 it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You see, what the prayer did was make it worse. Because the prayer revealed what Jesus had to align himself with, which was all the wrath of God at one time. The mark of the beast meant you drank the cup of wrath from God. This is the same cup. So whatever you think hell is, whatever you think God's anger looks like, it's worse, and it's all handed to Jesus here. We think God couldn't send people to hell. He's doing that to Christ. The wrath of God against every sin that's ever been committed. Think of the worst sins. The judgment for those genocides, for those rapes, for those murders. The judgment for those, the just equal judgment is put into a cup and handed to Jesus. And Jesus being in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood. We have to see Jesus' suffering. He's facing full on what's going to happen next. You see, would you like to know what God has in store for you? Well, Jesus did. And it was terrible. The capillaries in his body broke and mixed with his sweat. Think of the psychomatic, psychosomatic trauma that it takes to break blood vessels. It happens. Takes a great shock to your system. What Jesus did was he looked into that cup and he saw the evil judge, the evil acts and the judgment on them. And it broke the blood vessels in his body. He was in agony. He was shocked at the judgment. And when he rose up from prayer, what did he do? He did what God said. But then he goes to the disciples. You see, 
There's, there's a contrast in this passage between what Jesus does and what everyone else does. And the point is to show us Jesus is the only one we can trust. He goes to the disciples who didn't even know anything that he knew, and he says, they're sleeping from sorrow. What sorrow? They didn't know what was going to happen to Jesus. What were they sad about? They, Jesus had been trying to warn them, and they could tell that something was going to happen. They didn't know exactly what. They couldn't comprehend it. And so they were sad. They were upset. And what do you do when you're sad or upset? If you can't face it, you numb it. You medicate it. You sleep. You drink. You eat. You watch TV to, to push away the sadness. And that's what they did. While Jesus faced it, they slept. And he says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus is trying to show them that it's going to get worse. And sleeping's not going to help. And immediately it does get worse. So Jesus prays alone while the disciples sleep. Just a side note, if this was made up, whoever made it up didn't think much of the disciples. So we've heard that the disciples created this myth to perpetuate, but they're destroying their credibility. If it was true, no one would have wanted to listen to them. The ones who couldn't even stay awake and pray, why would you follow that person? So we know it's true partly because of the diminishing of the people who told the story. It made them look bad when they told it. But it makes Jesus look good. And we see the contrast of Jesus facing agony alone and his disciples sleeping. But then it gets worse. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve. See, when we hear the word Judas, what do we think? Terrible. But not at this time. Not yet. When they heard Judas, they knew the guy who for three years had worked with them, had cast out demons with them, had preached the gospel with them, had learned and sat and walked with Jesus with them. Judas was such a good, fake Christian that the disciples didn't know it. Now, can you imagine spending three years with somebody and Jesus and not knowing that they are a Judas? That kind of friendship, the three years of walking and training together is turned. How did Judas even know where Jesus was? Because Jesus had taken them there over and over. That was the disciples' special place to pray. And Judas says, oh, I know where they'll be. They'll be in that place where we all used to gather every night and pray together. I'll take you there. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, in our culture, that would be like a hug. Who do you hug? Friends, family, people you're close to. He didn't just betray Jesus. He said, I'm going to betray Jesus in a way that turns everything good that he's given back at him. I'm not just going to hurt him. I'm going to hurt him as deeply as I can. That's why Judas is such a terrible name. Because he took everything good and turned it back. He used the closeness to betray Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He didn't say, Judas, how could you do this to me? He said, is this where you're going? Is this who you want to be? This is who Jesus is. In the last moment, he tries to save Judas. He says, Judas, stop. Don't do this. 
don't do this one last evil act. He didn't fight him. He confronted him. Now, surely the rest of the disciples will do the right thing. And sometimes we think they do. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Yes, somebody's standing up for Jesus. No, they're betraying Jesus too. For three years, Jesus has been teaching them, my kingdom is in heaven, not on earth. The spirit must change you. Join the kingdom of heaven. For years, he's been teaching that. And the first time they come into real conflict, they forget everything he's taught them. They're like, yeah, the kingdom of heaven stuff was great, but right now we got to fight. And Jesus says to them, really? You too? Judas betrayed me for money, but you're betraying me for power. And one of them was so ready, he took, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, how did he cut off his ear? He wasn't aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head, and the guy dodged. You can't cut off someone's ear by on purpose. It's too hard. He did it by accident. He was trying to kill him. He said, Jesus, I'll do the right thing. I'll kill this man for you. Leon's Crump says, if your first reaction in a scrape is to cut off a man's ear, then chances are you've done that before. Peter, this is Peter here, he was ready. You don't swing a sword at someone's head and try to kill them for the first time. This is a man ready for violence, trained in violence, eager for violence, and now he's got a just cause. He's fighting for Jesus. And showing that even the disciples who tried to help didn't know what was going on. What does Jesus do? Jesus does what Jesus does. He says, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus had already told them, love your enemies. Do good to those who despise you. Bless those who curse you. And now they have a chance and they try to kill their enemies. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let him arrest me, and in fact, I'll heal the guy who's going to help beat me later. That's how Jesus handles things. So when we're tempted to use power to accomplish the kingdom of heaven, we've stood against Jesus. Whether that's physical power, political power, financial power. When we try to pressure and coerce people into doing the right thing, we've left the path of Jesus. Even if it's the right thing. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. If it were of this earth, my servants would fight for me. But it's not, so they shouldn't fight for me. And I know they did. I know they've embarrassed me. They've gone against all my teachings, but let me heal this man to show that Christ came not to judge, but to heal. Now, the world can't understand that. We can't even understand that sometimes. This idea of nonviolence, passive reception of, of suffering. No, we want to fight. We want to destroy. We want to kill. We want to end the people who, who oppress and cause us to suffer. But Jesus has a different way. This shows that the disciples did not trust God. They trusted the sword. You see, what had Jesus been doing? He had been praying, take this cup away. Nevertheless, I trust you, Father, to do what is right, and I'm going to follow your path because I know it's good. The disciples were sleeping. And when the time came to trust God, they had no preparation and they trusted themselves. When we suffer, have we been prepared to trust 
Or have we been sleeping? Can we, do we feel like we have to take it into our own hands? When problems come and suffering comes, we have to, well, God's not going to take care of it. I have to do it myself. Prayer brings a supernatural change that lets us absorb suffering for the sake of God. But it gets worse. Jesus, not, see, Jesus shows us how to deal with suffering. He allows it for the sake of the kingdom. He heals his enemies, but he also confronts them. He speaks the truth. He says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? This is Jesus who's pretty mild, loving. He, he attracted the lowest, the most vulnerable to him because he was safe. And he says, well, What are you coming out with these swords and clubs? What did you expect? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. Why not? The Bible says because they were scared. They didn't want to make the people mad. So they go and they sneak out to where he was sleeping. Basically, they kicked the door down of his house in the middle of the night and rushed in and grabbed him. And he said, you could have just waited till tomorrow morning. I would have been in the temple. I'm not hiding. Why have you come in the middle of the night? But this is your hour. This middle of the night, this darkness and the power of darkness. He says, I'm going to let you do what you have to do, and I'm not going to resist you, but I'm going to tell you that you're wrong. And so when we face unjust suffering, this is the model. We don't fight. We don't get bitter. We don't get angry. We absorb the suffering for Christ's sake. We help those around us, but we say to the people, you're wrong. You're doing the work of Satan. Stop for your own sake. This is what we do to, to deal with people who hurt us. We don't ignore them. We don't condone them. But we don't fight them either. This is what Martin Luther King, his whole model was nonviolent, direct action. It's nonviolent, but it's direct action. This is how we respond, just like Jesus, not like his disciples. So Peter follows them. Peter, the strongest, the most loyal, who had said just a few hours earlier, Jesus, when they come to kill you, I'll die with you. Now we have Peter. They arrest him. They led him and brought him to the high priest's house. Everybody runs away, and Peter followed at a distance. Safety. Peter was not quite so brave when there wasn't violence involved, when he couldn't work up his anger. Now he's scared. And he was the greatest of them. Peter was the one who we would like to be. The loyal, the, the outgoing, the one who was ready to step up. The one who worked with Jesus. It was an inner circle. But even he followed at a distance. He was warned. Jesus warned in the previous passage, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. I'm warning you. And in the passage, a certain servant girl comes to him. Were you with him? No. But Jesus says, one more chance. Another one comes to him. You are with him. You are with Jesus who you love. Now, I've never heard of him. A third man comes. No, you are with him. I recognize your accent. You're from the same place. And Peter says, I know he's the son of God. I've confessed that he's the son of God. I worship him, but I don't want anyone to know that I'm with him. And now what's happening to Jesus? See, when we think of it, it's like, oh, it's terrible because Jesus is in heaven right now. 
But Jesus on earth in handcuffs, suffering, being beaten. And Peter looks over at him, kind of side-eyed, and says, I don't know, I see the blood on his face, and I see the horror, and I see the tragedy, but I'm just here to watch the show. And that's the greatest of the disciples. And so what do we have in the end? Just like when he prayed, Peter runs out, and Jesus is left alone. Even when Peter confronts his sin, he leaves Jesus. And so the pattern continues. Jesus continues, and everyone abandons him. Jesus continues alone. And isn't that what suffering feels like? You're by yourself. You're completely alone. But for Jesus, it was true. No one was on Jesus' side. Judas certainly wasn't. The religious leaders certainly weren't. His own disciples weren't, and even the Father wasn't. That's what the cup of wrath was. The cup of wrath was God saying, you're on your own. Can you imagine that kind of suffering? That's who Jesus is. So what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Because we suffer, and we want to be disciples of Christ. How did the martyrs face death with boldness when Jesus didn't? How do so many people go in the face of death and say, I, I don't care, kill me in front of everybody? And yet Jesus is in the garden sweating drops of blood saying, please don't let this happen. What's the difference? It's what Jesus did for us so that we could do those things. So when we look at this passage, the most glaringly obvious thing is that we are not Jesus. You are either Judas or Peter. You're either Judas or Peter. You are not Jesus. Jesus did not fail. Judas rejected Christ. Have you rejected Christ? Now, you may walk in the church, and you may read the Bible, and you may preach, and you may memorize verses, and you may tithe, just like Judas. Don't let your good works confuse you. Don't let your likability or your saying, I like the church. I even like Jesus. So did Judas. Judas is lost because he rejected Christ. But I would say most of us are more like Peter. We're not wicked like Judas. We're weak like Peter. Peter wanted to do the right thing, but he was weak. And God let it happen. He said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, and we're going to let it happen. Why? Because until this moment, Peter thought he was a big shot. Peter thought he was somebody special. Peter said, everyone else is going to leave you. I won't leave you. All these other disciples, pff, they, don't know sac they don't know commitment like I do, Jesus. And God's like, okay, we'll see. So he let Peter follow him. And he said, Peter, we're going to show you who you really are. And that's what suffering does to us. It shows us we're not Jesus. We're Peter. And when it gets hard enough, we're like, I'd love to stick with you, Jesus, but oh, I just can't do it. Peter's weakness is revealed, and that's the first step to following Jesus. Peter wasn't really following Jesus until this moment when he realized he was a terrible person. Now, after this, later in Peter's life, he's the great, one of the greatest leaders, but only after he faces weakness. You cannot follow Christ 
until you realize how weak you are. And if you don't admit it, if you don't recognize it yourself, God will bring suffering into your life to show you you can't take it. Just like he brought into Peter's life. But he doesn't leave you there. See, he left Judas there because Judas wouldn't listen. But look what he says to Peter. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. The word. That's what you're hearing right now. You may realize you're weak, but now you need to hear the word. The word of the Lord. And what was that word? It's in the previous passage. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. And he did, and Peter failed. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fall. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What's Jesus telling Peter? What did, what did Peter remember? He said, Jesus told me that I was going to fail, and I realize I have. But Jesus also told me, that he prayed for me, that he would save me. You see, the word of the Lord is God coming to you and saying, the Bible says you are a wicked sinner, but Jesus died for sinners. That's the word that Peter remembered once he had failed. Several hundred years ago, an author wrote, Satan will object, you are a great sinner. We may answer, Christ is a strong Savior. You see, you're going to fail. You're going to suffer and you're going to fail. You're not going to be strong in suffering. But Jesus knew that. He knew you were going to be weak. He knew Peter was going to fail, and he prepared for it. You see, Jesus is suffering for Peter. So when you suffer, you recognize you suffer, you recognize your weakness, you listen to God's promise, but you still need Jesus to look at you. You see, the word had already been given, but it wasn't until the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that? God saying, couldn't do it, could you? You left me. You abandoned me. But it was when he looked at him that Peter turned. The same thing happens to us. You can hear the word every day of your life, but until God turns his face towards you, you're lost. Till the Holy Spirit reaches out and takes the words that we're reading and convicts you with them, you're lost. So we pray that the word will be preached, that our sins will be revealed, and that the Holy Spirit will convict us, will confront us. And yes, it's terrible. Peter felt terrible. But because of what Christ did, because Christ confronted him, Peter was saved. Because he confronted Judas too, you remember? And Judas rejected him. So God confronts us and we repent knowing that that's how God saves us. So when we face our suffering, we don't need to be Jesus. We can be Peter. We can be weak. You see, Jesus was, didn't look as brave as many Christians when he was facing death because he knew exactly the horror that he was entering. You see, when we face death, all we've got to worry about is dying our body and going to heaven. That's not what Jesus was facing. Jesus was facing the wrath that we avoid. He saw God's wrath poured out upon him, and it crushed him. Jesus feared. Jesus was in agony 
over the justice that was coming upon him for all the sins that he had not committed. But he trusted. He knew that God was going to work it out. He said, this is so terrible, I can't stand it. But God will make it right. Now look at the story. Look how bad it is, and yet it works out. Now look at your story. It's pretty bad, isn't it, sometimes? God can make this work out. He can make your life work out. See, that's what the story is telling us. Because he made it work out for Jesus, if you're with Christ, he'll make it work out for you. So we have hope in suffering. Trust that God will do the same thing for you that he did for Jesus. Put you through suffering and bring you back out. Sib says, God's children, usually in their troubles, overcome by suffering. They overcome by suffering. Here, lambs overcome lions, doves, eagles, by suffering, that herein they may become conformable to Christ, who conquered most when he suffered most. See the way of Christ? You conquer through suffering. But Christ took all the suffering that we couldn't so that we could have hope that we'll make it through. We won't be crushed by God. We won't be crushed by suffering because Christ was crushed. You see, this is an old story. It's not a coincidence that this was in a garden. What happened in the first garden? The first Adam was told, see that tree? If you don't eat it, you'll live. And Adam said, no thanks. Here we have the second Adam in a garden. But you know what God said to him? If you obey me, I'll kill you. And unlike the first Adam, who was promised only good things, the second Adam was promised only bad things, and he said, I'll do it. A different tree. The first tree was a tree of life. Good and evil, knowledge. Second tree was the cross. But the second Adam said, I'll obey you even to death. And as a result, Christ took the cup filled with wrath and drank every drop of it. So that when we face suffering, it's not this suffering. Christ was crushed so we wouldn't be. Christ was forsaken so we wouldn't be. The Father turned away from Jesus so that he wouldn't turn away from us. Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have a compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He cut your name into his hands. He cannot forget you because he forgot Christ. You see, when we see how deep the despair is of Christ, it gives us hope. Because if he took it, we won't. And so hope and suffering comes from knowing that Jesus died and suffered for us. And so we can know that there's a good end to this and that God will not give us anything we can't handle. It may feel like it and it may seem like that, but he gave Jesus something he couldn't handle and it killed Jesus but it took it away from us. He drank the cup so we wouldn't have to. Tolkien says a story about Sam and Frodo as they go on his journey. It's terrible. 
It's all bad. Sam's laying there in the field. It's dark. It's in Mordor. Smoke and dragons everywhere. And he looked up, and there, peeping among the clouds, high above the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked out, up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. If there's a shadow on your life right now, it will pass. Jesus guarantees it. And he calls us, like he called Peter, turn away from all those things and turn to me. And if you turn to Christ, he'll keep you. No matter what. Let's pray.